Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That's Not Crazy. It's Mental Health Month, so we're continuing on the path of discussing mental health. This is so stupid. I don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) Cut. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of That's Not Crazy. We are excited to have yet another guest joining us, Mr. Nate Glover. He will introduce himself here in a minute. But um, yeah. Hello. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm good. Very good. Good. I'm excited for this interview. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, we've had to reschedule and switcheroo and then I was a little bit late today, a lot bit late, and because I'm just a terrible person, so... It's not like you have a million things going on right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like doing... I was in the middle of a test, and I'm just... It's not timed or anything, so I'll just go back and finish it when we get done with this, but I totally spaced it. So anyway, we're here, we're happy, and let's do it. Yeah. Hi, Nate. Hi, thanks for having me. Um. So... Are we talking about bipolar today? <laughs> I can't with you. Can you tell us why or why not? I'd love to talk about bipolar, but I do not have bipolar disorder. <laughs> That's not fun. So, <laughs> Irene, tell us what happened here. I mean, and Do you still want to do the interview? I, mean, <laughs> I just have depression. That's, that's all oh. I have. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So I swear I heard you talking about this on your podcast that you had bipolar, but I misheard that. So she sends him a message and she's like, because he interviewed us on his podcast. And so we wanted to interview him on ours. And she's like, hey, so are you comfortable talking about bipolar? You know, and like your struggles with that. He's like, uh, I would be, but I'm not bipolar <laughs> unless you know something I don't. Right. And then she sends me that screenshot and she's like, well, this is what I did today. I'm like, oh my gosh. I feel like such That's an idiot. awesome. <laughs> Just randomly diagnosing people out here. So thanks for being a good sport. Oh, no problem. It's all good. So change of plans. This episode is going to be about depression. And your podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So tell us about, well, first we'll do our highs and lows. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. So my low and high both go with needing to ask for help and actually asking for it and that whole thing. So my low was feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, incapable, and feeling a lot of guilt because I couldn't do everything that I had on my plate. And so a lot of that had to do, well, it has to do with all, all the stuff that I have going on, but I recognized how I was feeling and I thought, okay, which of these things can I control? What can I do something about? How can I help myself through this? One of the things that I came up with was the fact that I have the option to work one less day per week. My boss had already offered that to me when I started, but I was like, no, there's no way I can go eight fewer hours. That's eight hours less pay, four times a month. 
and I'm like calculating how how can I do that I just can't I have to work 40 hours right so I thought about it for a little while and there's a lot of extra stuff I spend my money on and a lot of things that I don't need I can make it work the budget it's not a life or death thing it's not like if I don't have this money I'm not going to be able to survive I called my boss and I told her how I was feeling and I told her that I think I need to try going down to four days a week for a little while until I get myself a little bit better situated. I'm having a really hard time balancing work schedule, school schedule, and podcast schedule, clearly uh, <laughs> part of the reason I showed up late today. But so I, I had a specific work task that was very hard for me and the work schedule is something that I had the option of changing. So I did. And I told her about that task that was just too much. And under current circumstances, I couldn't handle it. So we switched that task to one of my coworkers. Um, we just kind of flip-flopped. I took a hard one for her. She took a hard one for me. And my boss said, sure, you can take an extra day off starting next week. And instantly... I felt relieved just that she was so gracious toward me and so helpful and understanding and just like everything that you hope a boss would say in that situation, she did. And it was like, I was so grateful for her. And today was my first extra day off and I already feel less stressed. I feel like I have a better handle over my school schedule and I gave myself extra time to do some assignments that I had backed up and I feel better like everything that I couldn't deal with I switched it around I made it a little bit easier I mean I can't not work all together that's the ideal <laughs> that's the ideal situation I just don't have to do it but advocating for myself made me feel really empowered and proud of myself and like all the opposite feelings of the crappy ones I was feeling for needing help. I felt so good asking for it and getting it and implementing it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. I like watching that whole process too, because it was inspiring for me. Um, and like, I could have done a lot of this a long time ago, but I waited until I was fully maxed out and losing my effing mind before I was like, okay, you can just, Ask for help. Oh, yeah. Cool how that works and how much better I feel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nate, do you want to go and then I'll go last? Yeah, sure. Uh, can I start with my high? Yeah. Okay, so my high was last weekend. I got to spend time with friends that I have not seen since the beginning of the pandemic. I had a friend drive up from Houston and we met at my best friend's house. And we all had two kids each that played along, and it was just really fun just being together and having some sense of normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. My low was just the fact that, and it's kind of really been bothering me, that my parents have made the personal decision not to get vaccinated. And because of that, you know, we've made the decision to not visit their home because they have a kid too. and it was just for safety reasons. And so it just kind of got me down that it's been so long since I've seen family. Thank you for Thank sharing, you for sharing. That. Yeah. So my low is also, I know you didn't use this word, but when you said your low, I 
kind of felt it, it was feeling inadequate, mm. um, just in over my head. And when I start feeling that way, I start doing more to prove that I am not in over my head and that I am indeed adequate. <laughs> oh, wow. That just like struck a chord. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe that's why we're friends because we both do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I am going to relate this to the physical thing I'm doing now, but just it's in everything that I'm doing. But physically that's showing up by pushing myself way too hard in training. And I now have really bad shin splints and I've had to rest for a few days and just like trying to heal them up and taking ice baths and doing all the little things to get them healed up so that I could start running again. The challenge is in a few, in a couple weeks and I just hope I'm ready for it. Um, my high this week is humility and gratitude. I don't think I'm ready to talk about this, but I hope at some point I am. It has to do with my faith and, um, I've just had a few moments this week of gratitude and humility and this surrounds just something so personal and deep and I don't know how to put it into words that are are even where my thoughts are with it I've tried to write about it I've tried to talk to other people about it I've tried to listen to podcasts about this and I just can't like it's so personal it feels like and I don't know how to how to do it so with that I think that's just a reflection of the fact that you're not ready like yeah because if you were it would probably just come out maybe yeah it maybe. might be a little easier yeah so the high though was this just moment of gratitude for where I'm at right now just gratitude and humility and it felt really good so that's where I'm at my highs and lows cool first Nate tell us a little about you and thank you for sharing your highs and lows and jumping right in. Um, I'm a big fan of your podcast, so I would love to talk about that a little bit at some point. But first, tell us your story. Who are you? Uh, well, my name is Nate, and I will tell the part of my story that relates to why I'm doing my podcast, Thoughts of Suicide. I grew up with two younger brothers, the youngest suffered from paranoid schizophrenia in his later teens. When he was 19, in 2006, he took his own life. And this started a new journey for me, just trying to understand mental illness, trying to understand what he was going through, trying to understand how and why someone would commit suicide. It's been 15 years and I'm finally to the point where I can openly talk about it without getting choked up. And so I wanted to use my story to help others in some way or, or another. But the problem is I'm not a good public speaker. I have massive stage fright. So shoot, about five years ago, I joined a public speaking group called Toastmasters. And this really helped me. Uh, get over uh, my stage fright. And I was able to give speeches about mental illness, about grief, about suicide. And that developed into an idea of doing a podcast. But 
that was just another level of fear. And I, you know, I thought, you know, I'm, I can never actually do it. But uh, several months ago, I was talking to my dad about it and he said, let's do it. He said, I'll, you know, I'll buy whatever you need. I'll get you a mic. We'll get you all the equipment you need. So I said, yes, because I just wanted, uh, I knew that if I said yes, it would force me to do it because I really think the conversations need to be had around mental health and especially suicide, because it's something people don't like to talk about. I didn't like to talk about it for many years. And when I did talk about it, I could tell it, you know, it made people uncomfortable. They didn't really want to talk about it or want to hear me talk about it. So I think these are conversations that need to be had. People need to know that they're not alone and people need to know how to just what to do when they have a family member that might be having suicidal thoughts. Yeah, I appreciate it so much. When I came across it, I when I started listening to it, um, you started the podcast about a little before we did, but I was looking at mental health podcasts too, and I saw your show and it struck me because I had recently just lost somebody to suicide and so much of what you're sharing on your show has helped me put words to what I have experienced, what I have emotionally felt, all of these things that I didn't know how to talk about or put words to your show has helped me a lot in that area. Um, so thank you so much for that. I appreciate what you're doing and how you go about the show. I love how honest you are. You've had guests who will ask you some pretty tough questions sometimes, and you're very honest and open about your own loss and your your experience through the past however many years it's been. It's been how long? Six? 15 years. Yeah, it's tormenting every day i'm sure and i hope that and i'm still like in the beginning stages i think of this grieving process but i still hear it in your voice too when you're talking about some of those things it, there's so many questions and unanswered questions that you can't ever answer yeah i just appreciate your vulnerability and openness and honesty about all of it so thank you for that yeah and it's always been important for me to be open with my friends and even my coworkers about my story because I think being vulnerable and putting my story out there lets them know that they can come to me if they have anything going on. And then also I just hope that my story, as bad as it may be, can help someone. Um, if it's just letting them know they're not alone or helping them understand what a loved one might be going through. You mentioned that it seems like people don't want to talk about it and people are uncomfortable even hearing you talk about your experience and, and the word suicide. And why do you think it's so hard for people? I think it's just a lack of understanding. I think it's hard for people to grasp why someone would choose to leave, why someone would choose to leave their friends and their family. You know, you always hear those terms thrown out as that they were selfish or they were cowards, you know. Do you think that contributes to like, like say if, let's just say me, I'll make it up. Like I, I have someone close to me that 
passed away, died by suicide. And I don't feel comfortable talking about it or I don't want to tell people or I don't want to say, you know, just now I said passed away or like a, I don't want to admit it. Do you find any sort of common ground with people who are afraid to talk about it from a personal standpoint? Can I um, interject here? From what I've experienced is people don't want to talk about suicide because they don't want to imagine that this would ever affect them and their lives. So they have a lot more trouble and a harder time saying the words and talking openly about it. I have found that people who talk about suicide openly have experienced suicide in their own lives, whether it was them um, attempting suicide, having thoughts of suicide, or having a loved one who has killed themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think... So probably the people who are... Like you said, they're the people who are the most open about it are people who have a more personal connection to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I like to use the word understanding because until it happens to someone close, I don't think you can really understand it. And actually how I was able to finally understand what happened was actually from a blog my dad wrote. He made an analogy of my brother's death to the famous uh, photo of the falling man at September 11th. You know, you look at that photo of him falling, more likely he jumped uh, because the flames inside the floor he was on were just too intense. But you don't hear anyone saying that he was a coward. You don't hear anyone saying that he took the easy way out. No one blames him for jumping. He didn't choose to die that day. And I honestly believe that the pain and torment inside my brother's head was just as real as the flames in that building. You just wrote a great article that was published, so congratulations, by the way, about the physical pain and the emotional pain. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Sure. So the idea behind it was that our mental health is just as important as our physical health. In fact, our brain is part of our body, so our brain is physical. But the article talks more about emotional pain, and that doesn't just have to be grief. It could be from anything, a divorce, getting fired from a job. But just like a physical wound, and I use the example of when I was a child, I got bit by a cat on my, on my hand and it ended up getting infected and I almost lost it. Uh, I had to go through therapy for it to work again. Even years later, sometimes there still might be some pain. So I drew the analogies to emotional wounds. You know, if it's bad enough, we need professional help. You know, there's nothing wrong with seeing a psychologist or seeing a psychiatrist or a therapist. The worst thing you can do with a bad emotional wound is nothing because just like that physical, physical wound, it will become infected and it will not heal. 15 years later, after your brother has died suicide, how are you coping now compared to how you were coping then? Then I wasn't coping, especially the year following it, I didn't like to talk about it. 
You know, I didn't like to talk about my brother. I didn't like it when family would talk about him, when they would just bring up his name in casual conversation. It bothered me. I was like, well, you know, I'm thinking, why are you guys just talking about him, you know, like it's nothing? He just, he just died a year ago. So I think people around me thought that I was being strong, that I was dealing with it well. The truth was I, I wasn't dealing with it at all. It sent me into depression. I believe it played a big part on why my first marriage ended a year later. And it wasn't maybe a couple of more years after that when I realized that I wasn't dealing with it. I wasn't addressing it. So I began to write, and I wrote a few blogs about my brother, about mental illness, and about suicide. Shortly afterwards, I joined Toastmasters, where I turned those into speeches. And I think it just gradually, I got to where I'm at now, to where I'm able to openly talk about it. And actually, it's gotten to the point where it feels strange to me that I can talk about it without breaking down. It makes me wonder, you know, is, is something wrong with me? Am I just a cold person now or what? I get that. In a different context, you know, I started, Irene has been doing hospice a lot longer than I have. And I'm a very emotional person. I cry at the drop of a hat. Everything touches my heart or makes me sad. If I see someone else cry, I cry the whole thing. And I'm dead inside. So nothing <laughs> makes me cry. So I was like, I don't know if I could do hospice because there's this like unspoken rule in nursing that you shouldn't cry when your patient families are crying or, um, you know, that's their pain. It's not your pain and get it together. And if you cry, you're making it about you kind of a thing, or that's the interpretation I got. So I'm like, I don't know if I can make it through a visit or make it through a, a hard thing without crying about it. And I got in and I started doing the work and, you know, a few patients died and things happen and I'm, doing it and I didn't cry and I told her I'm like is there something wrong with me because I'm not crying is that a problem or does that mean that I'm not connecting with them enough or whatever it was like the fact that I didn't cry and I didn't get emotional made me question if I was caring enough about them or connecting with them and she told me, you don't have to cry to be supportive or you don't have to be emotional to be supportive. Or you and don't I have to like, be emotional to have the emotion even. Yeah. But what she said, you don't have to, you don't have to be emotional to be supportive. And that just made me feel a little bit better about it. And now I'm in like this whole different place in my life and I'm thinking about some of the patients I have now and a couple in particular that I'm thinking about when they're going to pass and I'm like getting choked up just thinking about it and I'm like oh gosh am I gonna lose my shit when these people pass and what does that say about me now that I am crying when that used to I was beating myself up for not crying so I get that it's really interesting to reflect and compare your reactions and and yeah. like wonder what does that say about me or or my process yeah 
that's a really good point because I guess if I was crying every time I talked about suicide or my brother, I would not be able to do what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. I would be a horrible podcaster if I broke down (laughs) crying every time I mentioned it. Yeah. But then sometimes you might cry and maybe some some particular day or a particular memory or or just a connection or an openness that you feel with whoever you're talking to. I don't know. Like, I'm connecting with these two people in particular, but for not any explainable reason. It's just like, I don't know, just a connection. And these two feel like they will be more emotional for me. Um. And I've been thinking about that lately. I said something a second ago about when you're feeling the emotion, you don't necessarily have to show the emotion. And I I was thinking about anger. A lot of times I'll go into a hospice home and I will see somebody not being taken care of the way in my head and my standards are. And I get very angry, but I hold that back and don't show it to this family because I don't need to show that emotion in that moment to the people that are struggling and caring for or trying to care for this person. So that's what I meant by not having to necessarily show that emotion in that moment, but still having the emotion, you know? Sure. I doubt, and I don't know, and I don't want to speak for you, but I'm sure as for me, when somebody's talking about suicide, I don't cry every time somebody talks about suicide because I would be crying every time I listen to your podcast and I don't. <laughs> but I still feel it. I still feel the emotion and the, the sadness and I hear it in the voices and I hear it in your voice and I connect to that. I'm glad that everybody's not crying all the time because then we wouldn't be able to talk about these things yeah or like we talked about um was that last episode or the one before where we were talking about being emotionally honest Mm -hmm. and one of our friends saying oh you look like you're doing great and you, you don't seem sad at all and it's like I don't have to be sobbing every time I look at you to like express my sadness I'm like I still gotta work and like go to the grocery store and do life things that you wouldn't be able to execute if you were like all sobbing crying and like moping around like yes I'm still sad but right now I need to dry my tears because I have to brush my teeth drive to work go see a patient do the things and just because I'm going through the motions doesn't mean I'm not sad or does it feel different for you Nate compared to those first few years, like where you didn't want to talk about it, you had the emotion, but you did not want to talk about it because you were suppressing something compared to now, where when you are talking about it, you're not necessarily suppressing anything or holding anything back, but the openness is there. I wonder if there's a difference in how that's being expressed. Like, would you cry in the past, like by yourself? Or did you let any emotion out? Or did you just hide it completely no I didn't hide it when I would talk about it I would definitely get emotional but it wasn't often that I would because I didn't want to I couldn't but now that I can I I want to talk about it but no I would get emotional I remember I joined a support group a little bit less than a year after he died 
And I remember listening to the stories of the other people in the group and then sharing my story. Oh, yeah, I, I got very emotional. So I also found that it was hard to talk about it with family and friends. It was easier for me to open up with the strangers in the support group. So, I, you know, I don't know if there's psychology behind that, but, you know, I found that to be the case. Yeah. I wonder that. if there's less vulnerability when you don't, when you don't, you're not invested in what the other person thinks about you. Yeah. 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 We're just psychoanalyzing yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you mentioned your process and that it's been 15 years. Um, did you go to therapy? Did you seek a doc? Was there like a rock bottom, so to speak, for you, where you finally realized that you needed help or that you weren't processing? What did that look like or what made you change your course of grief? I don't know if I changed my course of grief, but I did have a moment where I realized I needed to address my own mental health because I was just losing focus at work, losing focus at home. And I'd always had focus issues in school as a kid, you know, and I wasn't really sure what was wrong with me. But I remember one time I was looking up the symptoms of adult ADD on Wikipedia and there were, there were nine symptoms and I, man, I had six of them to a T, like impulsiveness, forgetting names, dates, missing deadlines, um, leaving projects unfinished, easily distracted, disorganized extreme emotionality, trouble multitasking. So I thought, I must have adult ADD. So I, I found a psychiatrist. I'd never been to a psychiatrist. I, I walked in and I said, you know, I explained my symptoms and I said, I think I have ADD. Well, without any further conversation, she was just like, okay, here's some medicine for ADD. I took that for a while and it was awesome (laughs) but part of my symptoms were forgetfulness or not staying with a task so eventually I stopped taking the medication several years later I started to notice you know the same thing I was losing focus uh, with work at home and I was like okay I need to get back on that medication So I looked up, you know, what psychiatrists were in my area that took my health insurance. And I had good health insurance, but, I mean, even with good insurance, your options are limited. There were only a couple of psychiatrists in my area. So I picked one and told them, you know, that I had been diagnosed with adult ADD years before when actually I was the one that diagnosed myself. But they told me they didn't want to put me on ADD medication without a, an ADD test, uh, which I had never had before. They didn't offer this test at this office, so they referred me to a, another clinic in town that could do the test, and I don't think they took my insurance. I had to pay out of pocket. Your psychiatrist wouldn't do an ADD test. No, no. Jeez Louise. So I went to this other office and the ADD test was basically memory stuff. I'm a good test taker, so I, I passed with flying colors. Uh, I remember she told me, you, 
you do not have ADD. If you had ADD, you wouldn't have done this well in this test. So instead, you know, she wrote up this long diagnosis of, you know, what she thought I was suffering from. And it said a major depressive disorder. So I got put on uh, basically a low dose of Zoloft. And that's what I've been taking for um, a few years now. And to be honest, I don't even know if it's working. I don't know. I I don't feel like crap all the time. So maybe it, maybe it is working. But and it's also one of those things where I don't want to try a different medication because what if it doesn't work? What if I get horrific side effects? And that's the problem with mental health and medication is it's not an exact science. Like, yeah. You have to try different medications a lot before you find one that works. Sometimes the side effects are worse than, you know, the issue to begin with. Right. And it and you have to try them for a certain amount of time, a month or six months or whatever, and then imagine what else could go wrong in those six months. And it's a it's a pretty sketchy experiment sometimes. Yeah. And so whatever it is, if it's ADD, if it's major depressive order, whatever I have, what it feels like is just a heaviness sometimes. Like I'll, I'll have a task I need to do. I want to do it. I know how to do it. I have a plan to do it, but I just can't do it. And I don't know why. It looks like laziness, but it's not. It's something that I want to do and it just, it's so frustrating and I don't even know how to how to put it into words. Uh, right. It's frustrating for us too, working in the mental health field because um, we want to give 100% like this is what the science backs. This is what every, we just want 100% answers and we can't have that. Yeah. And we want 100% like instant gratification of our interventions to say, Oh, you have this thing wrong with you. Like you mentioned the the hand or the arm analogy. Okay, you have an infected cut on your hand. So we know we wash it, we dry it, we put antibiotic ointment on it, and we cover it up. And boom, it'll go away. But when it's psychological or psychiatric, we don't really know because those symptoms could be several different things. And this treatment worked for her. But it might not work for me. We might have the same diagnosis, but we can't necessarily take the same medication. Or and there's you know, so much about traumas and past relationships, and right. just, there's so much about our history that needs to be shared. And a lot of times, doctors don't have the time to sit there and hear the your history of all of the things. So then they're just like passing out pills yeah or sending you like that's why i was so shocked not shocked but disgusted more like it that your psychiatrist office couldn't find somebody in there to do an add exam for you when that should be well within their scope and instead of addressing your issue there or at least getting you one step closer they then make you schedule another appointment and then that's going to be a month away and then it's going to be another month before you can get back to your psychiatrist after you get those results. And if you're in crisis, yeah. That's that doesn't cut it. Yeah. And that's so frustrating to know that that's what's going on and a big reason 
a lot of people don't seek treatment because they don't know or they don't know where to start or they don't know what that means or what's going to happen to me. Or it's easier to self-medicate because then I'm fixing the issue right now instead of having to wait until two months from now. For me, I was trying to find a therapist that was in my insurance group and I have decent insurance and I could not find one that would take me on. It would be months. I had people say they'll call me back when they have an opening and I still haven't heard from them and that was months ago. So I am paying out of pocket for my therapist now. Thankfully, I'm able to do that right now, but it's insane. Like I need the the help right now. I don't want to wait six months for that. I can't. Right. So I'm supposed to wait for everything to get worse over the next six months Yeah. and hope that that helps or, you know, like, especially if someone's suicidal, they don't have six months to wait. Yeah. So in doing this podcast, you're interviewing people, you're hearing a lot of stories, you're hearing a lot of other people's traumas. How do you take care of your own mental health when you're exposed to so many hard things? That's a good question. Because I remember, you know, when I was in that support group back in 2007, you know, when I would hear the stories of the other people in the group, it was hard. It was hard. I would go home and their stories would bother me just as much as my own. I'm not finding that with this podcast, though. It's, it, you know, I'll listen to the stories. I, I feel their pain. I sympathize with them. But when the conversation's over, I don't feel like it's bothering me as much as I thought it would, you know, going into it. And I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's because I'm in a better place now or maybe it's just the role of a podcaster gives me a different take on it. But I really am just fascinated with the stories. I like to hear the different views people have and the different, uh, man, just, just hearing how even though people's stories are similar, just all the differences in the stories. So I'm not finding that it's taking a huge toll on me mentally, at least not, not yet. I think that's, that brings up our previous point in saying that we need to be careful when we share and how we share and, And when we process aloud our feelings and we try to encourage people to make sure they've processed a little bit or a lot of it before they get into these discussions. Because if you're not ready and you haven't done some healing or some work, you could do further damage. You could do damage to those who are sharing with you. So yeah, I mean, maybe it's your your medication and such, but maybe it's the fact that you have processed a lot of this and that you've sought help and that you've written and researched and, you know, you've kind of gone through the motions of some healing on your own behalf before you try taking on this really big task. Well, Nate, thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing about your podcast. Can you tell your our listeners where they could find you and on 
Instagram, what your podcast name is, and all of that good stuff. Yeah, sure. So the name of the podcast is Thoughts of Suicide. It could be found on most platforms, but I know the two main ones everybody uses are Spotify or Apple. And you can follow me on Instagram at suicide underscore podcast. Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing and being so open with us about your bipolar. (laughs) 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 About your story and um, for being so gracious with me after having been late today. I appreciate you and your patience with us as we figure this whole thing out. Yeah, I appreciate you too. I appreciate your podcast. Please keep making content. I love listening to it. It's helping me out a whole lot. So thank you. And thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm a fan and it's been an honor.